Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 128 of the Intercooler Podcast. As you can probably tell by the fact that it is my, that is Andrew's voice talking to you at the moment, uh, this is not going to be a normal podcast. It's going to be a very, very special one. It's not just going to be myself and Dan talking to you about whatever it is we've dreamt up this week. It is going to be the full unexpurgated interview that I did with a chap called Charlie Duke. Now, if you are a subscriber to the Intercooler website or app, and I hope you very much are, and if you're not, please go and take a look at the, inter- the hyphen intercooler.com um, and see what that's all about. Uh, if you do that already, you will know that, um, frankly, one of the greatest privileges of my working life to date um, was to have what I thought was going to be quite a short telephone conversation with this man charlie duke uh, turned out to be quite a long conversation charlie for those for whom the name means absolutely nothing um because he is not comes from the world of cars is one of four people who can tell you what it is like to walk on the moon only 12 people in history ever did it and sadly only four of them are left uh charlie was the lunar module commander on apollo 16 uh, he also did a lot of other really, really interesting stuff. Uh, I didn't know about his roles on Apollo 10, Apollo 11, the actual moon landing, um, and his, frankly, entirely unsung and crucial role in getting the crew of Apollo 13 home. So if you're any kind of space geek at all, if you or even if you just have a little bit of interest in extraterrestrial exploration and i guess these days with the uh with the artemis project still trying to get itself off the ground people are thinking about it a bit more than than they used to hopefully the next hour or so will be really really interesting charlie is very nearly 87 now but uh he is as quick and bright and sparky as he ever was um i spoke to him down the line from his home in texas um and we went into everything as you will hear so um please Sit back, enjoy the next hour or so 
uh, of a rather starstruck Andrew Frankel talking to a really very cool Charlie Duke. And uh, we will be back, Dan and I, next week. Normal service will be resumed on the Intercooler podcast. In the meantime, really, really hope you enjoy what follows. Thanks so much. How should I address you? Charlie. Charlie. Okay, Charlie. Um, well, I, I don't know how much time you've got, but um, it, it's great to hear your voice. Um, and, and I guess we will just um, get right in. Um, I, I wonder, do you, did you always, um, as a young boy, did you always want to fly? Was that the sort of thing that possessed your mind when you were a child? Uh, yeah, uh, probably in the uh, early teens, uh, uh, I decided uh, that would be flying would i didn't decide but i flying would be fun i thought and i got a couple of rides in a small single engine you know airplane and that was so much fun and when i was 15 uh early jet age uh contrails going over our uh city and uh so well that'd be nice to make contrails so i had i had that sort of desire i actually it wasn't an overwhelming desire but a desire to fly so uh and that's what happened so went off to prep school so i could get into the naval academy and is uh let's see it would be uh my junior year in high school spent two years at admiral farragut academy uh preparing for the naval academy and then uh uh then i uh, uh got to the naval academy and that's where i really fell in love with airplanes Instead of ships. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you joined uh, the United States Air Force, uh, I think, at the age of 21, um, which was also the year that uh, the Russians set, sent a, a satellite into space. That's correct. How, how did you feel about that? How did, how did America feel about that? Did, did you think that it should have been you guys who were doing that? Did you feel that there was a sort of a space race and that you needed to get um, up to speed with them? Well, at this point... Uh... I didn't think it was, I wasn't too concerned. Uh, I thought I was shocked actually. I said, golly, how did they do that? Yeah. We couldn't get five, four, three, two, one blow up on our <laughs> rockets. And so, uh, I was uh, stunned. I just soloed. Actually, I was in flight school and just soloed a day after my birthday. This thing went up on the 4th of October. So, uh, it was a real shock. Uh, but, uh, U S started really working hard and I had a sense that it was in a, we were in a space race, but, uh, uh, I wasn't going to be able to participate in it. You know, too young, too inexperienced, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so instead you went off and I think you chose to go to West Germany, uh, at the very, very height of the cold war. And I, I wonder if you could, um, share your experiences being over there and, and just how, um, I guess, uncomfortable uh, it must have got at that time. Uh, it was uh, it was tense a lot of times. Uh, we sat, uh, I was in a fighter interceptor squadron, so our job was to intercept anything that came across the uh, East German, Czechoslovakian border, any, anyway from behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah. If they had an unidentified object come across, we would scramble. Uh, and, uh, we were, uh, and that was a fun job. Actually, I enjoyed it. It was, uh, flying, uh, in bad weather and radar intercepts. And, uh, uh, it was, uh, a challenging job because of the bad weather in Germany. Uh, but, uh, it was worthwhile. I think the, the, 
it was around a year ago. I don't know. 1961 sticks in my mind is, is when they started building the Berlin Wall. That's, well, that's correct. Sure. Yeah. It's the same year yeah. that Gagarin went up. Right. And so uh, that was a lot of tension. Uh, the president, uh, he, he called up all the National Guard and all of the Air Guard. And we've had airplanes parked in every part of uh, Ramstein. So it was, uh, uh, in a way, a lot of fun meeting these guys and uh, flying with them. But uh, also, it was a tense time uh, for, at that point. And, and did you ever get sort of you know, up close with, with the Russians at all in the air? Uh, no. Uh, the ones that came across were uh, light aircraft uh, and uh, that we intercepted. We never... I intercepted one airliner once, uh, and it 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 was at about thirty five thousand feet, and it was uh, came right over Ramstein, uh, and uh, we climbed out almost straight out, uh, straight up uh, to intercept him. And as we got up there, we identified say it's an airliner, but I noticed as I was coming up close, the uh, it, it was a an airliner but the bottom was funny it looked like it had some cameras or something down there but uh which i reported but uh nobody got too concerned about it but that was the closest uh i came to seeing a uh it was a russian aircraft but it was not a it was on its way to paris apparently um and and, and after you came back from germany um you became um, you became a test pilot um, under General Yeager, I believe. That's correct. Uh, he was Colonel Yeager at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, I was I came back from Germany, and I went to MIT for two years to get a master's degree in aeronautics and astronautics. And uh, at uh, sixty two, there were probably uh, at least the uh, second group, maybe the third group, astronauts had been selected. And so I was working on the Apollo guidance and navigation system uh, that was being under contract to MIT to be built. Uh, and uh, so I was doing a statistical study uh, with another Air Force officer. And there I met some astronauts. Uh, they were very enthusiastic uh, uh, about their job and about the program. And so I asked them, how do I get that job? <laughs> and they said, well, yeah, you've got to go to test pilot school. First, you got to get your degree yeah. and then and then go to then apply for test pilot school. Well, well, that all went on. I was working on my degree, but I, I applied for, you know, Air Force says, what do you want to do after you get this degree? I was expecting to go to some lab somewhere, uh, but uh, I knew I wanted to get back in the cockpit and fly. So uh I volunteered for test pilot school and was selected. So in the summer of uh, 1964, uh, my wife and I uh, moved to uh, 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 moved to Edwards Air Force Base, and I entered test pilot school for a year. And there, um, and I have to ask you this because to me, this is the most extraordinary looking aircraft uh, I think I've ever seen. You flew Starfighters there. Um, and I wonder if they were as scary to fly as they as they are to look at. 
Uh, no, they were a lot of fun. You had to be careful. Uh, get behind the, I don't know, you know, it was, you had landing flaps and you had uh, a boundary layer uh, flow over the, uh, over the wings. And because uh, without all this stuff, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to land at, at low speed. So, uh, but it was a fun airplane to fly. We had uh, uh, some regular missions in it. You know, test piloting is not uh, throw the scarf out the window. And, you know, it's very precise. Yes. Uh, hold plus or minus five knots, plus or minus 20 feet, and, and get your data point. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but the, the, the flights that were the most fun in the 104 were zoom maneuvers. And we flew uh, at 35,000 feet uh, and uh, a full afterburner with no drop tanks on it. And so it would accelerate almost to Mach 2. And then you pulled up uh, to uh, 45 degrees and just let it go. And you could get it up to 100,000 feet. Uh, and, uh, and you had to be careful up there because the engine was the gyroscopic effect of the engine rotating wanted to tend to pull the nose off off and so you had to be careful uh on the rudders and uh, uh ailerons at that altitude but uh you, you'd come over the top and back down and and the runway was uh off to the left it was the lake bed and you'd do a simulated uh flame out landing and Generally, the engine would restart at about 25,000 feet, uh, and uh, rarely did you have to land it dead stick. And, and what sort of uh, speed was it, was it landing at? I'm just looking at those of those wings, and I, I guess you must have come in. You must have had to come in quite fast. Well, with the with the, I think if I recall, it were different speeds. If the boundary layer was off, uh, you, you had a higher speed. And, uh, but I don't remember with the boundary layer and the landing flaps and all of that stuff, it was, uh, to maybe 150 knots or something like that, but I don't remember exactly. Um, and in 1965, I think you saw an, an article in a newspaper or something saying that NASA were recruiting more astronauts. Um, I graduated. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I graduated from uh test pilot school and, uh, I think it was July of 65, I uh, went to work for Colonel Yeager. I was on his uh, staff for uh, uh, the uh, ast- astronautic side of the business. And, um, and so I can so, ask, what, what was he like to work with? I mean, he's obviously, you know, uh, uh, to us, he is, he is a legend. I, I just wonder what he was like as a, as, as a man to, to get along with. Uh he could he could be pretty firm <laughs> uh but uh and uh but i i enjoyed working for him i thought he was a good mentor uh he he'd give you a project this is what i want you to do and this is the course i want to write the curriculum for this course and so i uh it was sort of right up my alley and and to be honest he never interfered uh we had some senior instructors uh who was were closer to us and uh, than uh, Jaeger. He had it was a busy job being commandant, and uh, and of course then he was also uh, did a lot of appearances and he traveled a lot. 
but he was a nice guy to work with. He became a close friend. And uh, as we, as, as I got older and he, we, and I progressed up the ranks, we both ended up as Brigadier General and mm-hmm. uh, he loved to hunt like I did. So we, we to hunt together. Uh, and uh, uh, well, one was just a conference and one was a hunt. Uh, but uh, we see one each other a couple of times a year. Uh, towards the end and uh, then then he passed away um and in 1966 um you were informed that you'd made it into the fifth group of astronauts there were 19 of you that's um, right i wonder what that felt like did, did you did you in that moment think that you would definitely get into space was that a given by then or, or was that still something which you you know no it, it yeah it wasn't a given you were going to fly in space uh, you were, go- you were selected as an astronaut and, uh, but they had, you had no guarantee that you were going to ever get a space flight. Uh, two of the guys in our group of 19 waited. Their first flight was 1985. Wow. So they went, they waited basically 19 years till they got their flight and it was in a space shuttle. But, uh, but everybody wanted a flight, and what uh, you did, you you were given. If you weren't on a flight crew, you were given uh, systems to watch over, if you will. Uh, I was assigned the propulsion stuff, and I was looking at the uh, following the development of the lunar module engines, and also the Saturn V. Uh, Stuart Russo and I were assigned to uh, uh, to monitor the development of the Saturn V. The way you did that, uh, you got reports from Marshall. Uh, we would attend uh, Werner von Braun's uh, uh, monthly meetings, uh, staff meetings. Uh, we'd fly up and fly back. And then we'd report to the astronaut office. Uh, so that was the kind of things you were doing. You were staying busy. We were also learning uh, geology. Uh, you, you weren't they. They just wanted everybody to be up to speed in geology in case you got picked to go land on the moon. So yeah, and and what was uh, Werner von Braun like um, as as a person? Uh, I found him very humble and uh, uh, very friendly. Uh, he enjoyed having us there, and uh, uh, and uh, he was proud of the the work, especially the Saturn V. Uh, it. It was the most amazing rocket. Never had a failure. Uh, so reliable. Never even. Uh, so I found him uh, uh, very congenial and I enjoyed going to meetings and, uh, and you know, we'd have lunch together uh, occasionally and while we were up there. And uh, I found him very, very knowledgeable, competent, yet humble and uh, friendly. And, and the Saturn V itself, I mean, I guess compared to any other rocket, that it, I mean, you know, the Titan or the Atlas or the Redstone, this was a completely different proposition, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Well, it's huge. Uh, the <laughs> size of it. <laughs> you know, the other ones, like you just mentioned, they were uh, two-stage vehicles. Uh, and uh, But the Saturn was three stages, and uh, it was uh, very, very impressive sitting on the launch pad. and. Uh, the first time I saw it, they were stacking it in the vehicle assembly building, and uh, you just you just look straight up, and as far as you 
well, to the roof, you could see Saturn V, and it was uh, extremely impressive to me. Um, and then you got the job of being part of the support crew for Apollo 10, which was the the dress, the full dress rehearsal for for going to the moon. And as I think I understand, the support crew is not the backup crew, is it? It's it's a different kind of job. It's the third the third level. You have a prime crew, the backup crew, and support crew. Support crew, you never have a chance to fly. Uh-huh. Uh, if you don't train for the flight, you you're the gopher. You know. Get the checklist done. Get the uh, get this change done. Go go sit in on this briefing, and then you'd report back to the crews. And so, uh, but it's a good job. You, uh, it, I found it interesting. Uh, you monitored uh, closely the development of the uh, of the spacecraft through the test and checkout. Uh, some of those you did, but uh, not the I don't remember having a spacesuit that fit me back in those days Right. as support crew. So uh, you never did a pressure check in the vehicle, uh, but you you did get in it and did some whatever test it was that the prime crew and the backup crew didn't have time to do. And and how did you become, because you were for at least some of that, you were the um, in charge of capsule communications. You were Capcom for, for some of that. And by that stage, I think you'd already started specializing in the in the lunar module uh sort of uh i guess uh the the capcom came uh uh when uh uh yeah i i that's let me think back now i was also uh, on a team uh that the the propulsion division at houston had to make we were having had to make a decision on the ascent engine in the lunar module and it was on the edge of being unstable uh, when you ignited it. And so we had a team, and I was assigned to this team, uh, to visit contractors and make a decision. Are we, gonna, are we okay with the present engine, or should we need a new contractor? And if I remember, that was about six months. And we reported to the program manager, George Lowe, and uh, it was almost unanimous. We need to change contractors. Uh, and uh, so we did. Uh, and the the basic engine was good, but it was just the injector plates. It was unstable when it ignited. So uh, that was the uh, uh, sort of an additional duty uh, during the time when I was uh, a support crew. Uh, if I recall that timing. And so we were, uh, as a result of that, uh, I knew the most about the lunar module on the backup crew. So uh, uh, I would be Capcom for that active part of the flight where we would power up the lunar module and where we would, uh, you know, ignite the engines, the descent stage, the ascent stage, everything like that. So, uh, uh, that's how I became uh, Capcom on Apollo 10. And the rest of the team was going over for Apollo 11 uh, to work on the, on that first landing uh, attempt. And so Armstrong and, and uh, Gene Krantz uh, said, well, you did it then for a 10, do it for us now on 11. So uh, 
I wasn't support crew, so I wasn't supposed to do that. But they said, we want to keep this team together. Uh, and uh, so we want you as Capcom. So uh, I said, saluted and showed up for work as Capcom. It's very challenging, uh, too sorry. much. And I, and I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is when Neil Armstrong said probably the most famous thing that anybody has ever said, um, you were the guy on the other end of the line, weren't you? You were you were Capcom for that. And when um, and when they landed, um, when they landed, when yeah, they landed. I was I was when when they landed, but I wasn't on duty. We went off duty about an hour after the landing, maybe uh, two okay. hours. And then the, when he stepped out on the moon, there was another Capcom named Bruce McCandless. Okay, but but uh, the land, but the landing itself was yeah. I mean, you, you, there's a very famous quote of yours, which I'm not, I'm not going to repeat to you now. But um, yeah, it was um, well. There's a bit of it. So you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Um, that yeah. was um, that was quite a nervous moment, wasn't it? Uh, very tense uh, and and nervous. I think more tension than nervousness. Uh, uh, if you can separate the two, uh, we'd had a the tension in mission control grew as we got closer to the moon because we were having all these problems started out uh, uh, communication problem. Then we had a computer problem. Uh, then we had a trajectory problem, which led to a fuel problem because uh, Neil couldn't land where we had targeted him into. So he had to level off and fly horizontally across the moon for a while. And that used up basically all our reserve fuel. So now we're minimum fuel and, uh, so I remember, and you can imagine the tension, and uh, it was, uh, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? And uh, it, it, at least that's what I'm thinking in my mind. And as I look at the fuel levels on my monitor and uh, descent, the height, and, and uh, you knew it was going to be really, really close. So we had two calls in mission control when the, fuel got to a certain percentage uh it was called 30 60 seconds and then after that the countdown he called 30 seconds and so the next call after that was going to be at least for mission control was going to be abort but we landed with about 17 seconds wow left uh and uh, i'm convinced if we'd have called an abort Armstrong was not going to abort 20 feet off the moon. <laughs> he had a, he had the final say. Yeah. Now if he was 3000 feet up, uh, you don't have a chance. So you abort, but 20, 30 feet off the moon. Hey, I got a chance at this. And we got 4% fuel remaining. Uh, and, uh, let's, let's have a go. Uh, so, uh, anyway, we didn't have to get to that dilemma. And uh, we landed within uh, 17 seconds to the abort call. 17 seconds. It's not much of a margin, is it? Um, it's amazing. No. Um, and then um, could you tell us about your role on, um, on Apollo 13? Because I don't think that people, you know, if people go and watch the film that they made in the 1990s. Uh, you're not in it, but you actually, you were, you, you played quite a significant role in, in, in that mission as well, I, I believe. Yeah. Uh, John Young and I were the backup crew. And uh, and if you recall, I caught the measles uh, before the flight, uh, ten days or so, and yes. uh, and was uh, pretty sick 
at, at that. So they checked everybody out and everybody had had the measles except for Mattingly, who was supposed to fly. So he got taken off the flight. Jack Schweiker took his place and uh, I'd recovered from the measles. And so they were flying along, you know, 55 hours away from Earth. And uh, if I remember, it was like 10 o'clock at night. John Young called and said, hey, they got a problem. Uh, We got to go. Let's go into mission control. So John and I mattingly showed up at mission control. And uh, if I remember right, we were there for the next 35 hours. And John and I were in the lunar module simulator figuring out how to get them back on a free return trajectory and how to how to power up what sequence was the power up in the lunar module and uh, and and how how to control uh, this uh, burn uh, to get them back on free return. And Mattingly was on the other simulator. Uh, figuring out how to power this thing down and what order to power down the command module. It was never made to be powered down in spite and flight. So uh, there were some big decisions. So we spent hours in the simulator figuring all this stuff out. And, uh, and uh, it, it all worked. And, uh, and we swung around the moon and things began to look a lot better. We were given out a, CO2 scrubbers and uh, and uh, the lithium hydroxide. We were running out, and you know the lunar module was made for two guys for three days, and now we got no two guys for one day. Now we got three guys for four days. How do you make it last? Yeah. So uh, mission control got pretty smart and powering things on and off, and so. John and I took a break and went home and then we came back for in and over the next, let's see, I guess over the next 30, 40 hours, we were in and out of mission control and was there doing the reentry and jettisoning of the lunar module. And we'd worked out all those procedures and, and, um, which was basic, uh, you know, the lunar module, everybody had to jettison it. Uh, but it would, we'd never brought the whole lunar module back. We never brought the lunar module back. It was all either on the moon or jettisoned yeah. at the moon. And uh, so uh, how is this thing? That, and the debate was what's going to happen to this thing? Uh, and nobody really knew. It was, you know, because it wasn't an aerodynamic vehicle. So we let it go a couple of hours, I think, out. And it would sort of would drift away to the maximum distance, if you will. So when we when it hit the atmosphere, it uh, we never saw it, but it it burned up and never came close because we didn't see anything and nothing hit the spacecraft. Was was there ever a time when you thought they might not be coming back? Uh, there was, yes. I think for the first twenty hours after the accident, till we whipped around the moon and uh, all that was going well, we began to get smarter about how to manage the systems, the electrical power and the oxygen uh, and the water, uh, the consumables that we had on board. The battery power was not 
infinite. And so we had to manage. And so it got really, we had to turn off everything because those batteries had to basically charge the, the command module, keep it charged, uh, its entry battery. Uh, and so, and then we got three guys in there breathing. And uh, so we, in the movie, they captured it pretty well about how we use the command module filter to filter the carbon dioxide out uh, of the lunar module. The lunar module one was round and now command module was square. But mission control guys uh, built a contraption. And at about that time, uh, I began to say my attitude changed that, well, we're not going to make it. We got using up all this stuff. But we got smarter and smarter and smarter. And so uh, now it looks like instead of running out 10 hours before reentry, it's 10 hours after. So we begin to relax. And and my attitude came to if mission control doesn't make a mistake and the crew doesn't make a mistake, uh, we got enough stuff and we're going to make it. So I was pretty comfortable over the last 30 hours, I guess. And then um, after that, you were you were selected um, as part of the main crew for Apollo 16. Um, and just before that was meant to um, go into space, um, you went and got double pneumonia, I believe. That's correct. I had been on a geology trip uh, in early December uh, in uh, Hawaii, and I'd come down with the, uh, the flu. But I was going to press on. It's an important geology trip. So I stayed in bed, missed one day of training. But I got up, and then, but I just sort of slowly decayed. I went back to work. We got home, back to Houston. I was back to work. I was flying. We took a break off for Christmas. And then I, I wasn't feeling very good, but I was going to go to work. So I pressed on down to Houston, uh, down to Kennedy Space Center, and uh, I arrived there, I think it was Sunday night, the morning morning, I was so sick and weak, I couldn't get out of bed. So it was ended up double pneumonia, and I was in the hospital for a week. And did we, you think, that, did you think that, that was it? Did you think that was going to be the end of it for you? Yeah, uh, because, well, I, it's a possibility. I, I said, I got to get real quick. <laughs> so uh, at that point, we were going to launch in March. Uh, but, uh, something happened to one of the environmental, uh, not environmental, but, uh, reaction control systems on the command module. And it required the whole vehicle to be rolled back into the assembly building and destack the command module and fix it. So that delayed a month. So it gave me another month to get well. And when they had that rollback, I said, well, I'm going to be ready to go. And, there's not going to be any question about my ability to fly. So do you think if the original date had been kept, do you think you would have been okay to fly then? Or was it that month, which meant you were able to go? I think I would have been healthy enough, but I'd have missed a whole month of training. Yeah. Uh, and uh, had, would have been, would be rusty. I don't think they would have kicked me off, but because uh, I recovered, uh, it was just a while getting you, getting your strength back. Uh, and you know, missing a few hours of simulator stuff. Uh, but other than that, uh, I think I would have, I, I don't, I, I hate to contemplate that, but I, 
<laughs> Fortunately, they uh, about February they had this problem, and so uh, you know, I, I was beginning to be okay at that point. So, um, I guess this is going to, this is going to be a question that uh, that you will have been asked a lot of time, but but I've got to ask it. Um, the Saturn V, you, you know, you, you can simulate an awful lot of things on the ground, but not what it's like to take off in one of them. And I've, I've got some statistics here. It weighed almost 3,000 tons. It had set over 7.5 million pounds of thrust. And the one I like the best, which I found on, I think, the NASA website somewhere, is that it burned more fuel in one second than Lindbergh burned in his entire trip across the Atlantic in 27 hours. Um, so the question is, what is it like when someone lights a Saturn V underneath you? It begins to shake uh, side by side. It's not a pogo motion. It's a, a, a side by side. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's lateral, uh, uh, right to left across your shoulders. And uh, when you think about it, it's like being on a 300, uh, 110 meter long limber fishing pole. And you're out on the end, and the, yeah. and the guy that's shaking it's down on the other end. Yeah, and that's what it felt like. It just it vibrated, and uh, our our flight had a lot of vibration, and I got a little nervous. And John was uh, on the left side, and he'd flown Apollo ten Saturn five, and he was calm. He said, "We're go Houston," but man, it was really shaking, and I uh, I was surprised at that. But I was, I could see the instrument panels and, uh, you, you could do your job and at, uh, shutdown of the, uh, first stage, uh, we'd burnt, uh, let's see, four million pounds of fuel, well over half the way, you know, yeah. 60. So it was, uh, it was a, an exciting ride. And one of the problems on Saturn at this point, you can't see outside. Uh, Apollo had a, a boost protective cover over it. Uh, and, uh, and so you, you're looking at your instrument panel and you can feel the shaking, but, the, the there wasn't hardly any noise from the engines that you could hear. It was a good ride. After that, wow. it got really, really smooth about three and a half minutes after liftoff that they jettisoned the boost protective cover and we were going down, going in orbit heads down. And so out of your windows, you could see the, the beautiful Atlantic ocean deep blue and then that faded into a blue a lighter blue of the atmosphere that turns into white and into black is spectacular sounds absolutely amazing and then i think um you actually had um a reasonably straightforward journey to the moon um but then you had problems um when you're in lunar orbit getting the lunar module ready for for the descent uh the lunar module was pretty good shape uh, we had one, uh, overpressure of a system that we vented, uh, and, uh, and so that was a minor, uh, problem, but it wasn't a, it was with a reaction control system. The big problem came in the command module. One hour before we were to land, Mattingly had to change his orbit so that he'd be in a proper position if we had to abort the landing. And so as he was checking out the engine, the secondary control system was inoperative and it, it was just wagging. The engine was just 
back there wagging back and forth like a dog's tail. And so he reported that. And John said, don't burn. Well, that was really, to me, let me, I could, I, I mean, I was stunned and it hit me that if we, if he doesn't make this burn, we're not going to land this vehicle. Yeah. It's going to be a board. And you can imagine two and a half years of training, eight miles b- above your landing spot and mission control is going to tell you to come home. <laughs> so, uh, uh, it was uh, it was really a, a, a moment of uh, dejection, if you will, and, you know, uh, just discouragement. Uh, but Mission Control said, look, we'll look at it. Y'all just sort of fly formation. And they two, two rounds later, they said, we know what's wrong. We can't fix it, but here's a workaround, and you go for landing. And uh, hoorah. I mean, I'll tell you, <laughs> I, our uh, – spirits lifted and uh we were uh, uh we were ready to go on the next rebel round and, and so, you were the you were the lunar module pilot what what was it like to actually physically you know, did you was it all automated or did you have to actually manually fly the the lunar module yourself well i was on the right side i was like a co-pilot uh in an airliner and it was we had trained so that i would i would keep us on profile which is rate of descent versus altitude and John would actually fly. But the whole, uh, till you got down to 7,000 feet, it was all autopilot and the autopilot was flying it, but you managed, you, you looked to make sure the autopilot was staying on, on the profile. Uh, it did. So we didn't touch it. If it happened, if it wasn't, we were going to take over, but it, uh, Let's see, 7,000 feet, uh, 2,500 uh, meters maybe, a little bit less. Uh, the vehicle pitches over, and you can see the moon for the first time. And uh, What was that, what was we, that like? Uh, it, was, uh, it was exciting because we were right, almost right on track, right on target. And I said, hey, John, uh, I can see uh, – Lone Star and Gator, which were two big 500-meter craters uh, out uh, on my side. And it says, uh, and then I looked out to the north, and we were concerned about making it up north to the uh, big crater up there called North Ray Crater. And I said, it looks like we can make it up there. It's pretty smooth. And John Denny starts fussing at me. He says, give me some numbers. And the computer would tell you, where you were going to land, it was a landing point designation. And he didn't like it, so he could redesignate and move the landing point. And that's manual. And so he slowly took over manual control as I continued to talk him down on his profile. And if we'd had any emergencies, I was going to handle those. Uh, and uh, he was going to focus on, uh, on completing this landing. Uh, and so we, it was a two-man job. I talked him down, and uh, about 20 feet off the moon, he levels off, uh, but he's stable. He's picked out a good spot. And so I said, uh, we had a vernier switch uh, in the uh, in the cockpit that uh, one click down gave you one foot per second down. And uh, so he, I said – you leveled off, give me one click down. So we started down like one and another two, another uh, click, which we were two feet per second. 
uh, at about six feet off the moon, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, landing probes, which were electrical, hit the moon, closed the circuit, lit, lit a little blue light yeah. in the cockpit and said, contact. At that point, you shut down the engine when that light came on. And uh, we had a big whoop, and we were on the moon, and I, we just both exploded with enthusiastic joy. And uh, I, I, I screamed old Orion is finally here at Houston. <laughs> Fantastic. It was uh, really something. But you couldn't, um, I think I understand, you, you couldn't just um, get out of the lunar module. And um, I, I think you actually went to, I think you actually went to sleep first. Uh, I, I think one thing that people may not appreciate about uh, Apollo 16 is you didn't just sort of visit the moon and um, and go back again. You, you lived on, you were there for three days. You were on the surface, I think, I think for three days. That's um, correct. So it must have been a while before you could actually get to go outside. Uh, well, we had a, uh, they changed our flight plan. We were supposed to go outside, power down, put on our backpacks, uh, check everything out and go outside for our first excursion. But with that six hours delay, uh, they would they figured out we were going to be awake 37 hours before the rest period if we did what the flight plan said. Yeah. So uh, they changed the flight plan and uh, said, okay, we want you to go to sleep first. So uh, we took off our spacesuits, put up our little hammocks. Uh, I stayed on the radio so that uh, I could if mission control had a problem for us, uh, we could respond. And uh, we tried to go to sleep. I mean, but you can imagine four hours, five hours after you landed on the moon, I can't to go to sleep. I can't imagine what it must be trying to must be like trying to sleep when the moon's outside. Um, yeah. So anyway, we put up some curtains and turned out the light. So it was dark in there. But, uh, you know, your mind's just racing. And so finally, I told uh, Mission Control, hey, I'm taking a sleeping pill. John didn't have any trouble at all. He, he could go to sleep standing up, I think. If, but anyway, uh, I took a sleeping pill and got about four hours sleep of the eight hours. So uh, then the next night, next two rest periods, I, I should say, were uh, you were exhausted. Uh, eight hours in that spacesuit is a lot of hard work. Yeah. So... We took them, took them out, off, and cleaned them up, recharged the backpack, and went to sleep. Slept really good. And the next day, you became the tenth, um, and obviously to this day, the youngest man ever to walk on the moon. And and I'm guessing you must have spoken to a few people who'd already done it before you. Um, given given that and everything that you read about it, was it? Was it what you expected it to be, or was it um, just a completely different experience? Well, I mean, you can't capture the excitement, but the experience uh, was what we expected. Uh, we knew that the rover was going to come off good, and we we knew what the texture of the ground was, uh, the and how deep you can expect to sink in when you walk on it, and so all of that was from debriefing of from Apollo 11, 12, 14, and, and 15. And 15 stayed at three days like we did. Yeah. And so they, they had a car, and so they briefed us and what to expect, this, that, and the other. So we were so familiar with, with the operations 
that we were able to, we just took that for granted, but the awe and the wonder and the thought, I kept coming to me, I'm on the moon. I'm really <laughs> on the moon, you know? And uh, the, the beauty of it, Buzz called it magnificent desolation. Yes. And it really was. Yes. Uh, it, it, uh, we had mountains left, mountains right, uh, open valley out to the in front of us. And uh, with no atmosphere up there, everything was really, really sharp all the way to the horizon. Then you could look up and you saw this blackness of space. And uh, it was uh, 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 just I never got used to it, really. I, it, I, I was just in wonder the, the whole three days we were up there on the moon. And can you can you talk to me a bit about um, about the lunar rover? Um, that, that strikes me as being um, an amazing machine. It, it was also it was it was the first um, I think it was the first electric car you went in. I think you left it nearly 50 years before you went in, an, in another. Um, yeah. But um, one thing that, I, that that occurred to me is what, what would have happened? Because I think you went quite a long way from the lunar module in it. Um, and if something had happened, if it had got stuck or um, it had broken down or something, could could you have got back? Would it have been possible to walk back, or or were you absolutely dependent on it working as it should? No, uh, we had practiced. Hey, what if this thing breaks down out there at the, on top of Stone Mountain? You know, yeah. Uh, can we get back? And so we practiced that. And the way we did that was uh, NASA had a, a, a centrifuge and uh, that went around in a circle and they had used it for G training, but now it was just not being used. So, so why don't you guys put a cable on the end of that centrifuge and we'll put a harness on and you pick us up until we weigh one six down here um. on Earth. Okay. And so, and we, they did that. And then they started, uh, and we started, uh, jogging. They finally, uh, matched the movement of the arm with our speed. And we figured out we could make it four to five miles back. Yeah. So we, pra- we tracked, practiced it. Wow. Uh, and, and, uh, it would have been a lot more dip. Now, this is a flat surface. The moon's not flat at least yeah. not in our area. And so it's up and down and, and, uh, up, you, you know, going up a hill, you, you sort of bunny hop going down a hill. You sort of skip going level. You sort of Frankenstein walk. And, uh, so it would have been a lot more difficult to walk four miles on the moon, but I think we could have done it. That would have been a walk to remember. Yeah, sure yeah. would have. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't break down. We had one, we lost one steering, but we got it recovered in some mysterious way. Uh, and uh, we felt uh, uh, more and more reliable. Uh, second, the, the third mission, they went seven miles. I think they were seven miles away on Apollo 17. So, uh, and, and and what was it like to to travel in? Was it was it quite comfortable? Did you did you you got used to going around in a in a car on the moon? It bounced a lot, yeah. uh, and but you were strapped in, uh, and uh, and you were you couldn't quite get your rear end all the way into the seat because of your backpack, but you could get uh, uh, back in 
and uh, and then it was sort of upright, and you could see out in front of you. I was navigating, taking pictures. It, it was comfortable, actually. Once you got in it, uh, it was hard to get in, uh, and you had to. Then you had your seatbelt that cinched you in really tight, and so I was navigating, and John was driving. And uh, it was difficult for him to drive because you'd come over a ridge and there'd be a crater, uh, a rock or something you you didn't know was there. So you had to maneuver around. My job was to sit there and navigate uh, from point A to point B and take pictures every 50 meters of what we were seeing because the, uh, uh, the TV doesn't work on the rover when you're underway. It's, uh, it's It sounds amazing. And when you finally left the moon what were your feelings when you departed the lunar surface and, and went back up to um the command module and uh, that must have been a, a very bittersweet moment for you well it, it was uh the, at first we didn't want to leave we we asked them for two more hours and they refused so then they made the decision so okay we got to get off of this this moon and so john parked the car we climbed back in uh, we jettisoned our backpacks uh, and uh, some trash, and uh, then we got ready for liftoff. And once the engine ignited, you're on your way, and uh, then your focus is the it, it, now you're ready to get back with the command module. And uh, and so with uh, your, your focus sort of changes. Then once we got in the command module, and uh, and uh, then the we kept the lunar module, I think, for about a day. And right before we left lunar orbit, uh, it was uh, jettisoned the lunar module. And now your attitude is, let's get home. I'm yes. ready to, you know, it, our, we've done our moon, moon stuff. Now I'm ready to get home. And uh, we had a three-day trip home. And, and, when, and when you got home, um, did you think there was a chance you might go up again? Or did you realistically think that... Um, having done what you did, um, that was going to be it. Well, it w- we had a um, an outside chance of going again, and that was uh, we volunteered for backup. They needed a backup crew for Apollo seventeen. Yes. So, so John and I said, John, it's a dead end job, but who knows? <laughs> maybe they'll break. Maybe they'll break a leg. Yeah. Or maybe they'll catch the measles, you know. And so <laughs> we volunteered with the outside chance that we might get to go again. Of course, it didn't work out that way. And then uh, my next opportunity would be fly space shuttle, which John and Ken both did. But I left before the space shuttle was uh, flew. I left in 76, and the first space shuttle was uh, April of 71. And, and how did I you- mean, 80, 81. So- how did you feel when they, um, because there was going to be an Apollo 18, 19, and 20, but they but they cancelled those. Uh, I just wonder how you felt about that at the time. Oh, I mean, the old astronaut office was very, very disappointed. Uh, uh, there were some rumors of who the crew's going to be, and I think they already had the crews picked, and uh, and the vehicles were ready to go, and all it was was the expensive flight. But NASA got, I think they got real nervous about the, the politics, if if they in the last three missions we've had Apollo had been so successful, and except and even the Apollo thirteen was a success in the sense that we got the crew back alive. Yes. 
And uh, if we lose a crew on the moon, the politics, uh, I think, might have uh, caused the shuttle to be delayed more or maybe even canceled. So they got so nervous. Of, I think it was a nervousness about we can't kill anybody on the moon. Uh, the six landings we've had have been very successful. We've learned a lot, and let's stop. So the decision was made to stop. Um, Nobody, in the off- I don't think anybody in the astronaut office agreed with it. We wanted to keep flying, but that's that was above our pay grade. And that that was uh, well. We're recording this in February of 2022, um, just a couple of months um, before the 50th anniversary <coughs> of uh, your trip to the moon. Did you ever think that in all that time, in that half century, no one would ever go back? Uh, uh, yeah, I was uh, stunned. Actually, I mean, as I look back, I said. Why did it? Why is it taking so long? Uh, but shuttle and the space station were achieving a lot of good things. And uh, if you remember, President Bush had the had the uh, return to the moon, the Artemis program. I think it was called. Well, eventually it's called Artemis. But they had a command mod. It's called the Orion program, I think, at that point. And which is uh, Apollo on steroids. And we were going to go back to the moon. Uh, and uh, that was in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and but uh, thanks, new administration, uh, they canceled. Uh, uh, it, it continued under Clinton, but then Obama canceled it. And the only thing that was salvaged was the Quran, the Orion, which was the, uh, command module and now we're building on artemis and i think we're going to be, but that's just the way the schedule went and the decisions went i think it was not right but that's what happened and and, and today there, there there are 12 men who walked on the moon and there are four of you left um do, do you keep in touch with the others do you do you, do you meet meet up or, or or catch up at all uh occasionally yeah i talked to uh spoken recently with uh, at least emails back and forth between uh, 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 Harrison Schmidt on a 17 and 15 commander. It's been now probably six months or so since I talked to Buzz. Uh, but uh, we've, we've, we've had conversations about, you know, uh, this reunion and that re- reunion, things like that. Can you, Hey, we, I invited them all to our big, Big reunion. We will have a couple of reunions over in, in April. One in Houston, one in uh, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, one in San Diego. Uh, so I, you know, wanted to make sure everybody knew about it. I got an invitation, uh, and uh, and I haven't talked to Mattingly. My, you know, John Young died a few years ago, and uh, so it's just uh, Ken and I. But uh, Ken. Uh, it's sort of uh, just been unavailable for some reason. And, uh, uh, but we're still, we still talk every once in a while, but uh, I don't think he feels like he can be too involved with this reunion, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, And just uh, two more quick questions. Uh, I I should mention that um, the reason I'm talking to you is because it has been arranged through our friends at at Porsche cars, North America, um, because they, 
um, quite recently introduced you to their new Taycan, which was, as I said, I think the second electric car you had driven after the Lunar Rover. Um, and I just wondered what, um, what you thought about, uh, about driving that Porsche. Well, it was really high tech. Uh, like any other, you get a new airplane, I get this, this car, this, all this high tech stuff. And I wanted to figure out how it all worked. So uh, I, I did a, just a general overview, and I was really excited to have this opportunity. And, uh, I mean, then I, we started driving, and unfortunately, it was out at our local airport. And you could only go about 300 meters, and you had to turn around. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, so, but it really accelerated, and it, it, had, it, it was great handling, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and so it was a uh, a great uh, a, a day of really in, uh, fun with the the Porsche crew. Um, and my last question is: When you look up um, at the moon today, and 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 you think as you must, uh, I went there. I, w- I just wonder what your what are the memories that live most strongly with you today of that of that mission? I think probably the landing uh, was so dynamic. Uh, and uh, you could see uh, at a half moon, uh, the Terminator is just right on our uh, on our landing spot, and uh, it was uh, it was really exciting. And uh, you know, my wife and I have a lot of uh, romantic interests, if you will. We still get uh, love to see the moon, but the the sight that I see mostly as uh, remember is as uh, I look up and said, you know. That was a great experience 50 years ago. And uh, so I can remember so vividly so much of it because it was not a life-changing experience, but certainly the highlight of my uh, military career and NASA career. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much for for spending the time to talk to me um, about your experiences. It's been a pleasure and it's been a privilege and I'm very grateful to you. And uh, good luck with all the um, the 50th anniversary stuff, um, which you're going to do. And and, and thanks again. It's it's really been the most wonderful thing to talk to you. Well, that was a bit different, wasn't it? We've not had an astronaut before on the Intercooler podcast, someone who's actually walked on the moon. Um, It wasn't strictly about cars, was it? But... Yeah, I think it was worthwhile anyway. Hi everyone, Dan Prosser here. Um, I just want to jump in and remind you all that if you enjoyed that um, that conversation with Charlie Duke, um, Andrew's two-part um, feature is on the Intercooler app and the Intercooler website now waiting for you to read. Um, so if you want more Charlie Duke, maybe head over now to the Intercooler app and website, the-intercooler.com. Um, to read what Andrew wrote. Uh, Before we finish this week's episode, um, one other thing that I want to play you. This is a very short clip from our Last Blast podcast with Andy Wallace. That's Andy Wallace, the Le Mans winner, the hypercar test driver. This is the guy who did 300 miles an hour, more than 300 miles an hour in a Bugatti, which is kind of incredible. Um, And we recorded a Last Blast podcast with him. The whole thing is an hour and a half long, um, and it's available to listen to now, again, on the Intercooler app and website. Um, look for the video and podcast tab. Um, this is a very short clip. If you want a slightly longer clip, a 15-minute clip, it's available on the main TI podcast feed. But if you want the full thing, an hour and a half, head to the Intercooler app or website, the-intercooler.com. Thank you very much. Um, it'll be me and Andrew again uh, with a, a more conventional podcast next week. 
Um, but for now, enjoy this Andy Wallace clip. The first time I ever had a proper car was when I when I got into Formula Three. Yeah, we were using Volkswagen engines. Yeah, and part of the deal was you you were loaned a, a Golf GTI. It was a Mark oh, II. Wow. So yeah, Mark II Golf GTI. What an amazing car. It was. I mean, eight valve. Yeah, I had the eight valve. Yeah. Uh, the sixteen valve came along later. Um, not much later. Probably the following year. But actually, for the second year, I still had another eight valve. I, ne- I never did have a sixteen valve, but. Um, I couldn't believe it because I'd had rubbish cars up until that point yeah. and this was just and, and I thought it, it felt so fast 112 horsepower yeah. and it was, I think it was 850 kilos or something but it felt really fast yeah. fantastic golf ball for the gear yeah. lever and, oh it was great and we, we did lots of I remember the one of the times when and actually uh, you, you only had it for I think it was 9,000 miles and if you got to that they switched it for another one yeah. so I did have one GTR and the very first thing we had to do was go to Vallelunga for a test so I just uh, I left Oxford and I just drove I picked it up almost from VW and then drove straight to Vallelunga and I did the oil change myself in the in the paddock <laughs> Vallelunga The Last Blast podcast is sponsored by Footman James, a car insurance company unlike any other. Footman James exists right at the heart of the car enthusiast scene in the UK, holding regular car meets, publishing reports into the health of the classic car scene in this country, and yes, sponsoring the best car podcast out there. Thank you, Footman James. To find out more, visit footmanjames.co.uk. 